Amen. This week we celebrate the 4th of July. We celebrate Independence Day, a day of deliverance from tyranny, the day of freedom. Many in our culture here in these United States disagree about the nature of freedom, don't they? I mean, it's at a fever pitch, the debate on the nature of freedom. Franklin Roosevelt spoke on human, freedom, uh, human rights as freedom, like the freedom of speech and the freedom to worship and the freedom from poverty and fear. Others have spoken of freedom as living under government by law, Others have spoken of freedom as a complete escape from law. As one writer said, interestingly, freedom to seek, freedom is freedom to seek wisdom and to go your own way. To most of us, freedom is liberty, whatever that means. Freedom, perhaps, from unjust oppression. What is freedom? Or maybe I'll put it this way, what is ultimate freedom? Or what does the Bible specifically mean when it comes to considering true freedom? And that's what I think Jesus does in our text this morning in John chapter 8. The nature of true freedom. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8, where we unpack an incredible passage. Find verse 31 in John chapter 8. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So as Independence Day approaches here this week, let's discover And let's meditate on the freedom that Christ offers each of us here today. John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, and thank you Jason for reading an extended portion of this, Jesus has been confronting the Jews. He's been confronting the religious authorities specifically in John chapter 8 and he with the torches dying out in the temple ceremony of the feast of lights declares something really bold I am the light of the world whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness but will have the light of life and so he's implying that these Jewish religious leaders these Jews who are not believing in him He's implying that they're in the darkness. And and Jesus is going to continue to ratchet up the pressure against the opposition in John chapter 8. In fact, not only does he imply that they're walking in darkness, he warns his opponents that they were in the danger of, of the fires of hell. He says, unless you believe that I am, good translation, good reading, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. Jesus says. Then he says, you are from below. That's down here, not heavenly. You are from below. You are of this world. I am from above. I'm not of this world. And, And these two realms of below and above, they don't mix. They're different. And he's ratcheting it up and he's saying they have a big problem. But Jesus is far from finished in the mid part of John chapter 8. Far from finished. And we pick it up in the middle in verse 31. And watch how he ratches it up and drills deeper into the core of their darkness. Verse 31 of John chapter 8. So Jesus was saying, this is a shocking verse. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, 
If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. How did those who believed in him, the Jews who had believed in him, the leaders, probably a big component of Pharisees who were starting to put two and two together on some things, the Jews who believed in him, how did they react to this? You know, when you hear truth, right? It's, Sermon by the greatest teacher ever to preach? Yes. Amen. Thank you for the illumination, Jesus. No. Bringing the whole concept of freedom up really fired up the Jews who had believed in Him. If, if Jesus is offering freedom to them, especially thinking about the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, then this implies that they are in what? Bondage, right? Slavery. So let's keep reading. Verse 33. They didn't like it. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So, we're the offspring of Abraham. They're the seed of Abraham. And I don't think the Jews and the Jewish leaders were saying we've never been in political subjection to any nation ever at that point. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Throughout their history, they've been enslaved to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and now Rome. Yeah, they're kind of free in Rome, but not really at the time of Christ. And when push comes to shove, even with the Roman Empire, whose picture is on the coins? Caesar's. So, I believe right here, the Jews, with all of that Jesus is saying, the Jews realize that they're believing in Him. The Jews realize that He's speaking now about spiritual freedom. It's important that you get that. He's not speaking right here about political freedom. They know that Jesus is speaking about spiritual freedom. Because the Jews believe that because of their connection to Abraham, they had significant privilege spiritually. They were inwardly free. Rabbi Akaba is credited with claiming that all Israelites were king's sons, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believed themselves to be already sons of the kingdom. Absolutely convinced the religious Jews that they were healthy spiritually. They are not sick, right? They don't need a physician. They're already free as Abraham's seed. They do not need to be liberated spiritually. And so Jesus opens the floodgates when He mentions set free. He goes right at the issue. Right at the issue. And so in verse 33, then there's a direct challenge to Jesus. And this triggers Jesus bringing up this whole discussion of freedom and bondage and some of the most challenging and glorious verses in all of the Scripture. Pick it up again at verse 33. They answered Him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Keep going now, verse 34. Here's our text, the main part of it. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, and yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my word has no place in you. So this morning, we're going to look at this text by asking our own hearts three questions. Make this personal. This is not about the Jews. It's about us right here today sitting in this room. First question, what is the source 
What is the source of my bondage? What is the source of bondage in this passage? Verse 34. And it's important because Jesus says, Truly, 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 I say to you, all those who commit sin, slave, I'm just a little literal rendering, slave he is to sin. All those who practice sin or commit sin, slave he is to sin. And so the bondage that Jesus speaks about, let's work with me, is a bondage due to sin. Do you see that in the passage? In fact, look at verse 24. Jesus brings up in verse 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. Look at verse 21. I go away, you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Jesus is bringing up sin. That's the context. To be in bondage to sin means you're from below. You're of the world. That's what that means. Now, if you're in bondage or you're a slave to sin, let's talk about what it means to be a slave for a minute. A slave is completely under the control of another and unable to free oneself completely under the control of another and unable to free oneself. That's the definition of it. And so, slavery to sin is the most dominating, oppressive kind of slavery imaginable. St. Augustine said this about slavery to sin. Listen to these words, quotes. At times a man's slave, worn out by the commands of an unfeeling master, finds rest in flight can run away from the situation of slavery. But whither can the servant of sin flee? Himself he carries with him wherever he flees. An evil conscience flees not from itself. It has no place to go. It follows itself. Yea, he cannot withdraw from himself, for the sin he commits is within. He has committed sin to obtain some bodily pleasure. The pleasure passes away. The sin remains. What delighted has gone, the sting has remained behind. Evil bondage, he says. End quotes. So let me paint a picture for you about bondage and slavery to sin. There's a man named William Tyndale. He lived in the 1500s, kids. 1500s. And he translated, by God's grace, translated the Bible into English, into his native tongue and the people's native tongue so they could read the Word of God in their own language and feast upon the Word of God. And it seems really cool and excellent that he did that, but the powers that be did not like that. And he was burned at the stake, but before that, for 18 months, he rotted in prison for that. Now let's just paint a picture of what a prison or bondage is like. In prisons of those days, it's dark. It stinks. You're sitting in your own excrement. You've got metal shackles around your feet, around your wrists, and those thick chains are cemented into the dungeon wall. There's rats. There's no escape. That's the definition of bondage. You can't escape. You can't free yourself. You can't break the chains. Sin is that prison. We're in bondage to that sin. And Hindrenson says, well, every sin we commit draws the chains tighter until at last it will crush us completely. End quotes. And this is what Jesus means to be in your sin. A slave of sin. This is bondage to sin. This is what it means to be of this world, from below, spiritually dead. What is the source 
of the, of, of the bondage of human beings. It's sin. It's bondage, slavery to sin. The second question, how can I, and this is the, in many ways the most important question of all, the second one, how can I know if I am in bondage or free? How can I know if I'm in bondage or free? It's a complicated question. I'm sure William Tyndale knew that he was in jail. I'm pretty sure. Here's the irony. People don't know. They're deceived. That's the nature of the bondage. They think and feel that they're free. Blindness to spiritual death, blindness to sin, is really part of the reality of the bondage. Write that down. Bondage is blindness. Why do you think Jesus goes, come on, you know your Bibles, John chapter 9, right? The, the, the boy born with congenital blindness. The whole point is where he's going is the light. Can't see the light of the world. And Jesus still is picking up on this great theme of seeing the light. They're in darkness. I mean, how blind are you? I'll tell you how blind you are. Who is this text written to? You know, the text about the devil is your daddy and you're a liar like your father? No, you're born in fornication. We heard about the virgin birth and we don't like it. Right back at you. Picking up stones to stone him? Who, to whom does he speak? Verse 30, look at it. This is the nature of the blindness. This is the nature maybe of your blindness here. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. Oh, how about verse 31? So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him. Ah, those who believed him. The rest of John chapter 8 is written. Talk about blindness. To think that you are right before Almighty God, that you are a Christian, and walk your way right into hell itself. It's no joke. That's the nature of our blindness. We grab onto any teaching, any theology that makes us comfortable in our sin, in our bondage to sin, in our dream world, spiritually. This is a scary passage. A frightening passage. He's speaking to those who profess to be believers. I remember a few years ago, I was witnessing to a religious person, a fellow professor at Northwestern, off campus. Um, had the napkin out. was doing the gospel explanation on the napkin. Really trying to bring the bad news home to show her her sin, her bondage to sin, that all her righteous deeds, her very best, were like filthy rags before a holy God. And she was a trooper. Don't you love it when they're a trooper and they let you share the whole gospel? She was quite a trooper that day. I told her that her good works were not going to do anything on her for her on the day of judgment. She listened intently. She allowed me to finish. But then at the very end, she got really red and she said, it was a little embarrassing in the restaurant, you are making me very angry right now. The Jews in verse 33 are shocked and angered by the idea that they could be in bondage spiritually. And that is the first way to tell that you are in bondage. You're mad about being told that you are. Or you think you are free. Or you feel that you are free. And you're really irritated by the suggestion 
that your very best, that your sincerity, that your patriotism is not enough. The natural man hates the truth that sin has him in this kind of bondage. Hates it. You cannot tell if you're in bondage to sin by your thoughts and feelings about the issue. You cannot. The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked. You'll always assume that you are okay. This is part of the bondage. And so we must test ourselves here this morning. We do that in two ways. To answer this question, how do you know if you're free or in bondage? There are two ways. The answer is wrapped up in the text in what you do with the Word. What you do with the Word. This. Bible. And what you do with sin. Okay? Number one then, how do you tell if you're free or not what you do with the Word? Now, for those in bondage who are slaves of sin, look at verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me. Why? Because my Word has no place in you. If you are in bondage due to sin, the, my Word finds no place in you. This bondage due to sin, right, means that you don't have room in your life for the Bible, for the Word of God. Or, to say it, what this means, this no place, the Word of God does not operate in you. not operating in you. Or the Word does not have... I love this translation in one translation. The Word, because it captures the Greek, the Word does not have free course in you. It makes no progress in you. You have no heart for it, no love for it, no desire for it. That's those who are in bondage. The Word finds no place in you. But, on the other hand... Those who are free, there's something about the Word. Look at verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. If you continue in My Word, or abide in My Word. Remain in Jesus' Word. The Word of Jesus. Jesus in the Old Testament, says about Him, the Gospel account of Him, the epistles explanatory work of the person and work of Jesus Christ. One that is free is one who remains and abides in the Word. It has free course in you. Not on you, not in your brain, because you're a scholar and like to win debates free course in you. What does that look like? Well, read Psalm 119 this afternoon. That's what it looks like to have the Word of God have free course in you. Let me give you a sample from Psalm 119.97. Here's what it looks like. 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. I have not turned aside from your ordinances for you yourself have taught me. You yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate. I hate every false way. I hate it. That's when the Word has free course in you. It's what it looks like. It's descriptive. So the Word of Jesus Christ, this Bible, for free people in Christ, the Word is a precious possession. It's a joy to you. It's sweet honey to you. You're persuaded of its truth. You are ravished with His beauty and the cohesiveness of this Word. And you truly believe if you could only have one possession in the world, 
It would be the book of God. It would be the word of God. You get it when the missionary has a scrap of John chapter 6 huddling underground with the light on it in threat of death and persecution. You get it as they gather around that one scrap of the Word of God. Remember Tyndale, 18 months in prison? Here's what Tyndale wanted in prison. He wrote to his friend, please bring me a candle. Bring me a bit of clothing. And bring me my Greek New Testament. It's like Paul, rotting in jail, right before his head is about to roll by a Roman sword in 2 Timothy, his last book. Please bring me the parchments. Bring me the book of God at all costs. Bring me the book. This is the experience of one release from bondage due to sin. The Word has free course through the Holy Spirit, full of power and grace in our hearts, illumines the Word. You feel your soul changed by it. You're fed by it. You're convicted by it. And you know what? You're abiding here. You remain here. For the one set free, the true believer, they abide in the Word of God till they stop breathing. They will remain. They will persevere. They will never say, I quit on Jesus. I quit on the Word of God. Not by the power of God's grace. He will hold you fast. But it's a great test. You don't believe in Jesus anymore? You don't believe in the Word of God anymore? You might want to read John chapter 8. You will die in your sins. Now be careful here. The text does not say, if you abide in my word, then you will be my disciple. Did you notice that? The text says, if you abide in my word, you are, present tense, truly my disciples. Big difference. You don't abide in the word for 50 years and God says, close enough, that's pretty good abiding, so I'll make you a son now after you've earned it. No, it's a test for true discipleship. You're truly a believer. Here's what it looks like. You abide in the Word. It's not a condition for discipleship. It's not a condition for true salvation. It's telling us, Jesus is helping us here. It's telling us what true discipleship looks like. Write this down. This is not a condition for discipleship but a description of discipleship. It's not a condition for discipleship, but a description of discipleship. A follower of Jesus abides in His Word, remains in His Word. The Word has its way with you. And you know that's true. You know it's true. So how do we know if one is free or in bondage? Spiritually, first, what you do with the Word of God. So I'd ask you, honestly, does the Word find a place in you? What is your attitude towards the Bible? Be honest, be honest with yourself. The second way we can discern who is free and who is in bondage is to not consider the word, but consider your sin. And now we're getting nasty. It's not, look, Jesus said this, not me. Our sin. We've considered the word, now our sin. Look again at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. What is the evidence of slavery to sin? My 10-year-old nailed it in family devotions. This is not hard. Just read the text. Let it settle. I'm as scared as you are. This is the Word of God. This is not my opinion. The evidence of slavery to sin, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Whatever commit, now listen, you say, well, commit sin. Look, 
Don't deceive yourself here. Let it sink. This is what the desperate hearts do. They quickly want to redefine this. Whatever, here's, what I, here's my point. Just let this sink in. Whatever commit sin means right here in this passage, you don't want this to be you. Can, it, can we at least agree with that? So what does commit sin mean? Well, this is what's called for you Greek and English grammarians, a participle, the one who does sin. Present tense participle, ongoing. The construction in Greek points to a person characterized by a continuing state of sin. So Jesus is not indicating that each individual act of sin represents bondage. But he refers to the regular practice, the habitual course of practicing sin, an unbroken pattern of sin without a desire to repent, without a desire to fight, without conviction. Look, if you're the kind of believer that says, Jesus, you can have this, but I have this, be careful. Be careful. First John, it's, it's John again. First John chapter 3, verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. Why? Because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. You say, well, that means I can never sin. That means you can't practice sin. The book of John says, if you say that you have no sin, if you're around here saying, that's good because I don't even have sin. If you say that you have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So if you are comfortable living in an unbroken pattern of sin that you're not willing to repent of, not willing to fight of, and you're a true Christian, I can tell you something. The Spirit has made you miserable and the, 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 this church, the pastors of this church, the people of this church, the Lord's table that has you look, and all the forces of heaven itself will come after you to convince you to cease and desist your pattern of sin if you're one of the children of God, a son of God. Don't mess with sin. Meditate on this. So true believers don't practice sin. On the other hand, true believers are freed up finally to practice righteousness. Never been able to do it before until you're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You have the Spirit living inside. Now you're free to practice righteousness. Many passages we could go I'm not going to have you turn, but you could go to many passages. You could read Romans 6 this afternoon. I'll read a couple of verses from Romans 6. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its loss. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as, uh, to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Do you not know that when you present yourselves as someone, as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became Slaves of righteousness, finally free to practice righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving? If you think you want to go back and continue in sin, like it's some good thing? He says, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? Did you hear that? 
the things which you are now ashamed, for the outcome of those things is death. So how do I know what freedom looks like? Your attitude towards the living Word and the written Word. You love it and you love Him. And your attitude towards your own sin, you hate it. You hate it. You're ashamed of it, the text says. You struggle against it. Listen, you say, well, I struggle with sin, Pastor Jeff. I'm addicted to this. I'm addicted to that. You don't know my past. Do you, if you struggle, that means you're wiggling. And if you're wiggling, then you're alive. If you're fighting against sin, that is good evidence of the Spirit of the living God working within you. Fight, dear brother. Fight, dear sister. Let's fight together. But that's the point. You're not indifferent to it. You're fighting against it. For 27 years, I was the believer in John chapter 8. And I was smart. I had the Christian... I, read, I did Pilgrim's Progress my senior year. Bible class. But it wasn't until 27 years of age through the witness of my friend Chris Drager, who's gone home to be with the Lord, that the Lord opened up my eyes. And I'm telling you, we thought it was funny. I almost got Christian character of the year. Boy, did my friends and I laugh. Boy, did we think that was funny. They didn't know what was going on in the darkness. I was, I did hate sin when I got caught. Oh, I hated it when it cost me my reputation, my privileges, and all of that. That's different than truly hating sin for what it did to my Savior and how it is in violation of the Word of God. But at age 27, I remember I finally went to Twin Cities Bible Church. My friend kept begging me to go Five years, finally I went. Lloyd Johnson preached Galatians. Opened up the gospel to me and the scales fell off. I had no idea. I thought I was recommitting my life to the Lord. My theology was a little shaky. But everything changed. I went home to my town home and I'm reading about saving faith and I'm crying. My mom thinks I'm going crazy. And I just... Couldn't wait to go back to hear Lloyd open up the Word again. And all of a sudden, I wanted to go to that Romans Bible study. I, I thought, am I joining a cult? I, why do I like this so much? A year later, I recognized God caused me to be born again. And so I followed Him in baptism. That's true freedom. It's freedom to glorify your Creator by trusting His promises. It's freedom for the first time to love your neighbor. It's a freedom to think of others before yourself. It's a freedom to follow Jesus instead of following the, those idols, like my favorite idols of fame and money, of being the best, of being number one. Freedom to follow Jesus. That is true freedom. So how do you know if you are free today? Question number two. Answer, what is your attitude towards the Word of God, the Bible? And what is your attitude, your heart, towards your own sin? I mean, you should see the Scripture twisting that goes on so that people can be comfortable in their sin. Don't deceive yourself. For 27 years, I was deceived. Third question, and most importantly then, we need to know this. How can I be set free? Tell me. How can I be set free? Well, if you're asking that question, good. And if you're a believer here and you're wondering, is this me, God? That probably means you're free because you care. 
That's what typically happens. The people who are half asleep tonight, scrolling, wondering about, you know, whatever. Bored with it all. How can I tell if I'm in bondage to free? What you do with the word and with sin. Third, how can I be set free? Verse 31, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth. And the truth, verse 32, the truth will make you free. Oh, okay, the truth will make us free. But then look at verse 36. So if the Son, and notice it's capital S in verse 36, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So there's, the text tells us the truth makes us free and the Son or Jesus makes, makes you free. And so that's good because in the book of John, truth and Jesus are together. Almost where the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ is called the truth. Or you could call it, as we like to call it, the gospel in the book of John. So the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ sets people free, is what Jesus is saying in this passage. True freedom is possible only through the truth of the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can free you. Do you remember what he said in John 14? I am. I don't know the way to heaven. Philip. I think it was Philip. I don't know the way to heaven. I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Antas. Pastor Dan, you'll like this. It's only used here one time in the whole book of John, this adverb. It means hard to translate. Are you ready? Free indeed's good. How about actually free, really free, certainly free, definitively free, doubtlessly free, unquestionably free. How does Jesus free? Verse 35 will help us to find out how we can be free indeed. Look at verse 35. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So the Son's going to make us free. He's going to do that by taking a slave who's part of the household. Or you've got, you can be a son in the household. Now if you're a slave in the household in that day, the slave's position is temporary. They might actually get some of the inheritance. Did you know that? But they might not. Or just a little of it, or not at all, depending on the mood of the master. They might be freed later on, maybe not. The slave might be given away. They could be confiscated or sold to another slaveholder. The place in the house is not guaranteed. By contrast, a son it remained in the house. A son is safe in the father's house. A slave can be sold, can be given away. He's not safe. He's not secure in the household at all. In verse 36, we find the Son makes slaves free by changing their identity to sons. Jesus is the Son, capital S, the Son par excellence, who rules over God's house forever, and therefore He has the authority to release in his household, to release slaves from bondage, to liberate slaves, and to make them sons in the house. So true freedom is moving in a moment of time from the status of a slave to sin to the status of the son, a son of the living God. 
Release from the slavery of sin. Not to wander around aimlessly in the streets. Release from slavery. But be adopted to be brought in as a son of the Father into the house. That is true freedom. So your position, if you're scared in this passage, is one of the most comforting passages in all the Scripture. Our position in the Father's house is not maybe. It's not wishy-washy. It's not uncertain or temporary. It is sure. Look at the text. How long does the Son remain? Louder. Forever. That's a long time. Son remains forever. Because you are sons, Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So, part of the answer of how we become um, truly free is that we were slaves, but Jesus, the one with authority over the household, He takes us from a status of this in the household and He gives us an eternal status now as sons through adoption. But you say, how does He do that? Well, the answer to that is He's got to redeem you out of the bondage of that prison. He's got to pay the eternal bail. He's got to pay the scriptural term as the ransom price to redeem us out. Well, how does He set us free? John 8 tells us. John 8, Jesus is teaching in the temple. Jesus is probably speaking really loud because He's got to speak over the sacrifices that are occurring in the temple. The screaming of animals as they are slaughtered. And Jesus Himself says in verse 20, He says, these words He spoke in the treasury as He taught in the temple and no one seized Him. Why? Because His hour had not yet come. What hour is this? Verse 28, Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am and I do nothing on my, unknown, my own initiative, but I speak the things the Father has taught me. When the Son of Man is lifted up. And so we have clues even in, in John. He's going to be lifted up. And we know that He's going to be lifted up and there's in the, as part of the sacrificial system, even from John chapter 8. And we find in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. The purchase price to bring you from a slave status to son status and to rid you of your sin. The purchase price. The redemption price. The eternal bail was Jesus upon the tree. Sacrificing Himself for six hours. The penalty for your sin. The eternal penalty for it. The wrath of God, the cup of the wrath of God was poured out upon our Lord Jesus Christ. And He in His own body for six hours experienced whatever die in your sins feels like. The dread that you feel with that phrase. He experienced in his own body for six hours. He drank that to change your status from slave to son. And if you would really believe that Jesus paid it all, the truth in not just your head, but your heart, 
Believe that you are in bondage to sin. Believe that you can't free yourself. Believe that Jesus paid it all, that He's alive now, and He's got the power still over His household to make you, to change you, to change your status right now forever. He has that power. He's alive. And if you believe that, there is a faith in Christ that does save. Brought by the Spirit. And He can save you. And make you a child of the Most High God today. And that is true freedom. True freedom is being liberated from the tyranny of the penalty of sin. The tyranny of the power of sin. And one day, praise God, because we love this, because we're such messes. One day, freedom from the presence of sin itself. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin gone. It's not earned by abiding in the Word for 50 years. It's received with empty hands. I can't free myself. Help me and save me. And then He he changes you to hate your sin and to love the Word of God and to want to grow and experience more and more freedom from sin. True freedom is not found in religious background, a family name, or your pedigree, only the perfections of our Lord Jesus Christ. True freedom is not temporary or uncertain, but eternal and unshakable. I can't predict the future of our freedom in the United States of America as we approach the 4th of July. I cannot. But I can tell you this. If you follow Jesus, if you believe in Jesus, you have the freedom that will matter forever. The kind of freedom that counts. And while being tied at the stake with about ready to be burned for translating the Bible into English, William Tyndale's last words were this. Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. You see, open the eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that is true freedom.